Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. Our last podcast of the season features Yah Jesse at St. Paul Public Library, Marion Park. Ghanaian American novelist Yah Jesse is the author behind Homegoing, one of the breakout hits of 2016. This sweeping, transcontinental family saga follows the descendants of two sisters torn apart by the African slave trade. The legacy of slavery follows six subsequent generations, through the American Civil War to 20th century Harlem and up to modern day. It has earned a wide range of accolades and honors. The Washington Post endorses Homegoing as Alex Haley's Roots for a New Generation, a bold tale of slavery, how much we know, and how much we willfully forget. Jesse's unique, relevant, and engaging voice earned the 26-year-old the National Book Foundation's highly coveted 5 Under 35 Award for 2016. Random House released the New York Times bestseller in paperback in April. Thank you so much for that introduction. Standing on my tiptoes a little. Um, and thank you all for coming out and, and spending this day with me. It's a beautiful day. Um, so Homegoing is a novel that follows the family lineage of two half-sisters, Afia, the first half-sister, is the wife of the British governor of the Cape Coast Castle, which is a slave fort that still stands in what is now known as Cape Coast, Ghana. Essie, the second half-sister, is kept in the castle as a slave before being sent through the Middle Passage to America. And the novel follows down the line about 250 years of Ghanaian and American history, ending in the present day. Um, I started this novel in 2009. I received a fellowship from Stanford University where I was getting my bachelor's uh, to travel to Ghana and conduct research for a novel. And initially, I had a different idea in mind. I thought I wanted to write a book about a mother and her daughter, so I thought it would be nice to travel to my own mother's hometown, which is in the central region of Ghana, and just see what struck me. Um, nothing did until, <laughs> until a friend came to visit. And so we kind of had to think of things to do to occupy our time. And, and that's how I found myself at the Cape Coast Castle for the first time. Um, and it was while at the castle, while taking the tour, that the tour guide started to talk to us about how the British soldiers 
who used to live and work in the castle would sometimes marry the local women, which was something that I had never heard before and which really fascinated me. Um, and then from there, he took us down to see the dungeons. And so I guess standing in those dungeons, thinking about not only the kind of harrowing experiences of the people who would have been kept in these dungeons, but also thinking about the fact that there were just free Gold Coast women walking above them, um, I knew immediately that I wanted to write something that would attempt to juxtapose those two experiences, that of a woman who was free up above and, and that of, um, of someone who would be kept down below as a slave. But I didn't know uh, at that point you know, how long it would be, you know, how many years it would take. Um, all of that happened slowly. I just had that first inkling of an idea um, at the castle. And so I'm going to read a little bit to you tonight. Uh, I'm going to read from Ness's chapter. Ness is Essie's daughter. She's the first character to be born on American soil. Um, and she, we meet her when she's uh, at a plantation in Alabama. There was no drinking gourd, no spiritual soothing enough to mend a broken spirit. Even the Northern Star was a hoax. Every day, Ness picked cotton under the punishing eye of the Southern sun. She had been at Thomas Allen Stockham's Alabama plantation for three months. Two weeks before, she was in Mississippi. A year before that, she was in a place she would only ever describe as hell. Though she had tried, Ness couldn't remember how old she was. Her best guess was 25, but each year since the one when she was plucked from her mother's arms had felt like 10 years. Ness's mother, Essie, had been a solemn, solid woman who was never known to tell a happy story. Even Ness's bedtime stories had been ones about what Essie used to call the big boat. Ness would fall asleep to the images of men being thrown into the Atlantic Ocean like anchors attached to nothing. No land, no people, no worth. In the big boat, Essie said they were stacked 10 high and when a man died on top of you, his weight would press the pile down like cooks pressing garlic. Ness's mother, called Frowny by the other slaves because she never smiled, used to tell the story of how she'd been cursed by a little dove long, long ago. Cursed and sisterless, she would mutter as she swept. When they sold Ness in 1796, Essie's lips had stood in that same thin line. Ness could remember reaching out for her mother, flailing her arms and kicking her legs, fighting against the body of the man who'd come to take her away. And still, Essie's lips had not moved. Her hands had not reached out. She stood there, solid and strong, the same as Ness had always known her to be. And though Ness had met warm slaves on other plantations, black people who smiled and hugged and told nice stories, she would always miss the gray rock of her mother's heart. She would always associate real love with a hardness of spirit. 
Thomas Allen Stockham was a good master, if such a thing existed. He gave them five-minute breaks every three hours, and the field slaves were allowed onto the porch to receive one mason jar full of water from the house slaves. This day, in late June, Ness waited in line for water beside Tim Tam. He was a gift to the Stockham family from their neighbors, the Whitmans, and Tom Allen often liked to say that Tim Tam was the best gift he'd ever received, better even than the gray-tailed cat his brother had given him for his fifth birthday, or the red wagon he'd received for his second. How's your day been, Tim Tam asked. Ness turned toward him just slightly. Ain't all days the same. Tim Tam laughed, a sound that rumbled like thunder built from the cloud of his gut and expelled through the sky of his mouth. I suppose you're right, he said. Ness was not certain she would ever get used to hearing English spill out of the lips of black people. In Mississippi, Essie had spoken to her in Chui until their master caught her. He'd given Essie five lashes for every Chui word Ness spoke. And when Ness, seeing her battered mother, had become too scared to speak, he gave Essie five lashes for each minute of Ness's silence. Before the lashes, her mother had called her Mame after her own mother. But the master had whipped Essie for that too, whipped her until she cried out, my goodness, the words escaping her without thought, no doubt picked up from the cook who used to say it to punctuate every sentence. And because those had been the only English words to escape Essie's mouth without her struggling to find them, she believed that what she was saying must have been something divine, like the gift of her daughter. And so that goodness had turned into simply Ness. Where are you coming from, Tim Tam asked. He chewed the chaffy end of a wheat stalk and spit. You ask too many questions, Ness said. She turned away. It was her turn to receive water from Margaret, the head house slave, but the woman poured only enough to fill a quarter of the glass. We ain't got enough today, she said. But Ness could see that the buckets of water on the porch behind her were enough to last a week. Margaret looked at Ness, but Ness got the feeling that she was really looking through her, or rather that she was looking five minutes into Ness's past, trying to discern whether or not the conversation Ness had just had with Tim Tam meant that the man was interested in her. Tim Tam cleared his throat. Now, Margaret, he said, that ain't no kind of way to treat somebody. Margaret glared at him and plunged her ladle into the bucket, but Ness didn't accept the offering. She walked away, leaving the two people to stew. While there may have been a piece of paper declaring that she belonged to Tom Allen Stockham, there was no such paper shackling her to the whims of her fellow slaves. You ain't gotta be so hard on him, a woman said once Ness resumed her position in the field. The woman seemed older, mid to late thirties, but her back hunched even when she stood up straight. You knew here, so you don't know. 
Tim Tam done lost his woman long while ago, and he'd been taking care of little Pinky by himself ever since. Ness looked at the woman. She tried to smile, but she had been born during the years of Essie's unsmiling, and she hadn't learned how to do it quite right. The corners of her lips always seemed to twitch upward unwillingly, then fall within milliseconds, as though attached to that sadness that had once anchored her own mother's heart. Ain't we all done lost someone? Ness asked. Ness was too pretty to be a field nigger. That's what Tom Allen said to her the day he'd taken her back to his plantation. He'd bought her on good faith from a friend of his in Jackson, Mississippi, who said she was one of the best field hands he'd ever seen, but to make quite sure to only use her in the field. Seeing her, light-skinned, with kinked hair that raced down her back in search of her round shelf of a buttocks, Tom Allen thought his friend must have made some kind of mistake. He pulled out the little outfit he liked for his house niggers to wear. He'd had Margaret take Ness into the back room so that she could change into it, and Ness had done what she was told. Margaret, seeing Ness all done up, clutched her hand to her heart and told Ness to wait there. Ness had to press her ear to the wall to hear what Margaret said. She ain't fit for the house, Margaret told Tom Allen. Well, let me see her, Margaret. I'm sure I can decide for myself whether or not somebody's fit to work in my own house. Now, can't I? Yes, sir, Margaret said. I reckon you is, but it ain't something you gon' want to see, is what I'm saying. Tom Allen laughed. His wife, Susan, came into the room and asked what all the fuss was about. Why, Margaret's got our new nigger locked up in the back and won't let us see her. Stop this nonsense now and go fetch her here. If Susan was like any of the other master's wives, she must have known that her husband's bringing a new slave into the house meant she had better pay attention. In this and every other southern county, men's eyes and other body parts had been known to wander. Yes, Margaret, bring the girl so we can see. Don't be silly about it. Margaret shrugged her shoulders and went back to the room and Ness pulled her ear from the wall. Well, you best come out, was all Margaret said. And so Ness did. She walked out to her audience of two, her shoulders bared as well as the bottom halves of her calves. And when Susan Stockham saw her, she fainted outright. It was all Tom Allen could do to catch his wife while shouting at Margaret to go change Ness at once. Margaret rushed her into the back room and left in search of field clothes and Ness stood in the center of that room, running her hands along her body, reveling in her ugly nakedness. She knew it was the intricate scars on her bare shoulders that had alarmed them all. But the scars weren't just there. No, her scarred skin was like another body in and of itself, shaped like a man hugging her from behind with his arms hanging around her neck. They went up from her breasts, rounded the hills of her shoulders, and traveled the full, proud length of her back. They licked the top of her buttocks before trailing away 
into nothing. Ness's skin was no longer skin, really, more like the ghost of her past made seeable, physical. She didn't mind the reminder. Margaret came back in the room with a headscarf, a brown top that covered the shoulders, a red skirt that went all the way to the floor. She watched Ness put them on. And so Ness worked in the field. It was not new to her. In hell, she'd worked the land too. In hell, the sun scorched cotton so hot it almost burned the palms of your hands to touch it. Holding those small white puffs almost felt like holding fire, but God forbid you let one drop. The devil was always watching. Hell was where she had learned to be a good field hand, and the skill had carried her all the way to Tuscumbia. It was her second month at the Stockham Plantation. She lived in one of the women's cabins, but she had made no friends. Everyone knew her as the woman who had snubbed Tim Tam, and the ladies, angry when they thought she was the object of his desire, and even angrier when they realized she didn't want to be that object, treated her as though she were little more than a strong wind, an annoyance that you could still push through. In the mornings, Ness prepared her pail to take out to the field with her, cornmeal cakes, a bit of salt pork, and, if she was lucky, some greens. In hell, she had learned to eat standing up, picking cotton with her right hand, shoveling food in with her left. It wasn't something she was required to do here at Tom Allen's, work while eating, but she didn't know any other way. Look like she thinks she better than us, one woman called just loudly enough so Ness could hear. Tom Allen sure won't think so, another said. Ness had learned how to tune the voices out. She tried to remember the tree that Essie used to speak to her, tried to still her mind until all that was left was the thin, stern line of her mother's lips, lips that used to usher out words of love in a tongue that Ness could no longer quite grasp. Phrases and words would come to her, mismatched or lopsided, wrong. She worked all day like this, listening to the sound of the South, the insistent buzz of mosquitoes, that screech of cicadas, the hum of slave gossip. At night, she would return to her quarters, beat out her palate until dust billowed from it, wrapping around her like a hug. She would set it back down again and wait for a sleep that rarely came, trying her best to still the harrowing images that danced behind her closed eyelids. It was on a night like this, just when she had snapped her palate into the air that the pounding started fists beating against the door of the women's cabin in a steady, urgent rhythm. Please, a voice called. Please help us. A woman named Mavis opened the door. Tim Tam stood there, cradling his daughter, Pinky, in his arms. He pushed into the room, his voice choked, though there were no tears in his eyes. I think she got what her mama had, he said. The women cleared a spot for the girl, and Tim Tam set her down before he started to pace. 
Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, he cried. You best go fetch the doctor, Ruthie said. Doctor ain't helped last time, Tim Tam said. Ness stood behind a row of women, their shoulders squared as if headed into battle. She pushed her way through to the center to catch a glimpse of the child. Pinky was small and sharp-edged, as though her body were built from sticks with no bend to them. Her hair was tied up in two big puffs. The whole time the women were watching her, she made no noise save for a quick intake of breath. Ain't nothing wrong with her, Ness said. Suddenly, Tim Tam stopped his pacing as everyone turned to stare at Ness. You ain't been round here long, Tim Tam said. Pinky ain't spoke a word since her mama died, and now she can't stop with these hiccups. Ain't nothing but hiccups, Ness said. Those ain't killed anyone yet, as far as I know. She looked around at all the women, shaking their heads at her disapprovingly, but she couldn't tell what she'd done wrong. Tim Tam pulled her aside. These women ain't told you, he whispered, and Ness shook her head. The women so rarely spoke to her, and she had finally gotten good at tuning out their gossip. Tim Tam cleared his throat and hung his head a little lower. See, we know ain't nothing wrong with her but the hiccups, but we've been trying to get her to speak, so. His voice trailed off as Ness began to understand that the whole thing had been nothing more than a plot to trick little Pinky into utterance. Ness pulled away from Tim Tam and looked at the small congregation of women carefully, one to the next and then the next. She made her way to the center of the room where Pinky lay on the pallet, her eyes staring up at the ceiling. The girl turned her eyes toward Ness and hiccuped once more. Ness addressed the room. Lord, I don't know what kind of foolishness I'd walked into at this here plantation, but y'all need to leave this girl alone. Maybe she don't want to speak because she know just how crazy it make you. Or maybe she ain't got nothing to say yet. But I reckon she ain't gonna start tonight just because y'all making like you actors in a traveling show. The women wrung their hands and shifted their feet, and Tim Tam's head sunk a little lower. Ness walked back to her pallet, finished beating the dust out, and lay down. Tim Tam walked over to Pinky. Well, let's go, he said, reaching for the girl, but she pulled away. I said, let's go, he repeated, shame coloring his voice gray, but the girl snatched herself away again. She went over to where Ness lay, her eyes shut tightly as she begged sleep to come quick. Pinky's hand brushed Ness's shoulder, and she opened her eyes to see the girl staring at her, round moon eyes imploring. And because Ness understood loss, and because she understood motherlessness, and wanting, and even silence, she reached for the girl's hand and pulled her down onto the bed. You go on ahead, she said to Tim Tam, Pinky's head already nestled between the soft cushions of her breasts. I got her tonight. From that day forward, Pinky could not be separated from Ness. She had even moved from the other women's cabin into Ness's. She slept with Ness, 
ate with Ness, took walks with Ness, and cooked with Ness. Still, she didn't speak, and Ness never asked her to, knowing full well that Pinky would speak when she had something to say, laugh when something was truly funny. For her part, Ness, who had not known how much she missed company, took comfort in the girl's quiet presence. Pinky was the water girl. On any given day, she would make as many as 40 trips to the small creek on the edge of the Stockham's plantation. She carried a plank of wood across her back, arms folded over it from behind so that she looked like a man holding a cross. And on each end of the plank hung two silver pails. Once she had reached the creek, Pinky would fill those pails, bring them back to the main house, and then empty them into the large water buckets that lived on the Stockham porch. She would fill the basins in the house so that the Stockham children would have fresh water for their afternoon baths. She would water the flowers that sat on Susan Stockham's dressing table. From there, she went to the kitchen to give two pailfuls to Margaret for the day's cooking. She walked the same worn path every day, down to the creek, back up to the house. By the end of the day, her arms would throb so hard Ness could feel her heartbeat in them when the girl crawled into bed with Ness at night and the woman hugged her close. The hiccups had not stopped, continuing since the day Tim Tam had brought her into Ness's cabin, hoping to scare the child into speaking. Everyone pitched in with a remedy. Stand the girl upside down. Tell her hold her breath and swallow. Cross two straws on top her head. The last remedy, put forth by a woman named Harriet, was the one that seemed to work. Pinky made 34 trips to the creek without a single hiccup. Ness was on the porch, getting her fill of water on Pinky's 35th trip back. The two red-headed Stockham children were out and about that day, the boy named Tom Jr. and the girl, Mary. They were running up the stairs just as Pinky rounded the corner, and Tom Jr. knocked the plank so that one of the pails went flying into the air, water raining down on everyone on the porch. Mary started to cry. My dress is all wet, she said. Margaret, who had just finished ladling out water for one of the other slaves, set the ladle down. Hush now, Miss Mary. Tom Jr., who had never been much for gallantry, decided to try it just then for his sister's sake. Well, apologize to Mary, he said to Pinky. The two were the same age, though Pinky was about a foot taller. Pinky opened her mouth, but no words came out. She's sorry, Ness said quickly. I wasn't talking to you, Tom Jr. said. Mary had stopped crying and was staring at Pinky intently. Tom, you know she don't talk, Mary said. It's all right, Pinky. She'll talk if I tell her to talk, Tom Jr. said, shoving his sister. Apologize to Mary, he repeated. The sun was high and hot that day. Indeed, Ness could see that the two wet drops on Mary's dress had already dried. 
Pinky, eyes welling with tears, opened her mouth again, and a wave of hiccups came out, frantic and loud. Tom Jr. shook his head. He went, in the, he went into the house while everyone watched and returned with the Stockham cane. It was twice his length, made of a dull birch wood. It wasn't thick, but it was so heavy that Tom Jr. could hardly hold it with both of his hands, let alone the one it would take to snap it back. Speak, nigger, Tom Jr. said, and Margaret, who had long since stopped her ladling, ran into the house crying, ooh, Tom Jr., I'm gonna find your daddy. Pinky was sobbing and hiccuping all at once, the hiccups blocking whatever speech she might have given. Tom Jr. lifted the cane in his right hand with great effort and tried to snap it over his shoulder, but Ness, who was standing behind him, caught the tip of it in her hand. It tore through her palms as she tugged so hard that Tom Jr. fell to the ground. She dragged him half an inch. Tom Allen appeared on the porch with Margaret, who was breathless and clutching her chest. What's this? he asked. Tom Jr. started to cry. She was gonna hit me, Daddy, he said. Margaret tried to speak up. Massa Tom, you lie, you was. Tom Allen raised his hand to stop Margaret's speech and looked at Ness. Maybe he remembered the scars on her shoulders, remembered how they had kept his wife laid up in bed for the rest of that day and put him off his dinner for a week. Maybe he wondered what a nigger had to do to earn stripes like that. What trouble a nigger like that must be capable of. And there his son was on the ground with dirt on his shorts and the mute child, Pinky, crying. Ness was sure that he could see clear as day what had happened, but it was the memory of her scars that made him doubt. A nigger with scars like that, and his son on the ground. There wasn't anything else he could do. I'll deal with you soon enough, he said to Ness, and everyone wondered what would happen. That evening, Ness returned to the women's quarters. She crawled into her bed and closed her eyes, waiting for the images that played every night behind her lids to still to darkness. Beside her, Pinky began to hiccup. Oh Lord, here she go. Ain't we had enough trouble for one day? One of the women said. Can't get no kind of rest when this girl start to hiccup. Ashamed, Pinky slapped a hand to her mouth as though with it, she could erect a wall to block the sound's escape. Don't pay them no mind, Ness whispered. Thinking about it only gonna make it worse. She didn't know she was speaking to Pinky or to herself. Pinky squeezed her eyes tight as a series of hiccups exploded from her lips. Leave her be, Ness said to the chorus of groans, and they listened. In the night, once they had all finally reached sleep, Pinky rolled over and snuggled into the soft skin of Ness's gut. She allowed herself to hold the girl and she allowed herself to drift off into memory. Ness is back in hell. 
She is married to a man they call Sam, but who comes straight from the continent and speaks no English. The master of hell, the devil himself, with red leather skin and a shock of gray hair, prefers his slaves married for reasons of insurance. And because Ness is new to hell, and because no one has claimed her, she is given to calm the new slave, Sam. At first, they do not speak to each other. Ness doesn't understand his strange tongue, and she is in awe of him, for he is the most beautiful man that she has ever seen, with skin so dark and creamy that looking at it could very well be the same thing as tasting it. His is the large, muscular body of the African beast, and he refuses to be caged, even with Ness as his welcoming gift. Ness knows that the devil must have paid a great deal of money for him, and therefore expects hard work, but nothing anyone does seems to tame him. On his first day, he fights with another slave, spits on an overseer, and is stood on the platform and whipped in front of everyone until the blood on the ground is high enough to bathe a baby. Sam refuses to learn English. Each night, in retribution for his still black tongue, the devil sends him back to their marriage bed with lashes that are reopened as soon as they heal. One night, enraged, Sam destroys the slave quarters. Their room is savaged from wall to wall, and when the devil hears of the destruction, he comes to serve punishment. I did it, Ness says. She has spent the night hidden in the left corner of the room, watching this man she's been told is her husband become the animal he's been told that he is. The devil shows no mercy, even though he knows she is lying, even though Sam tries time and again to accept the blame. She is beaten until the whip snaps off her back like pulled taffy, and then she is kicked to the ground. When he leaves, Sam is crying, and Ness is barely conscious. Sam's words come out in a thick and feverish prayer, and Ness can't understand what he's saying. He picks her up gingerly and places her on their pallet. He leaves the house in search of the herbal doctor, five miles away, who comes back with the roots and leaves and salves that are smeared into Ness's back. It is the first night that Sam sleeps in the cot with her. And in the morning, when she wakes up to fresh pain and festered sores, she finds him sitting at her feet, peering at her face with his big, tired eyes. I'm sorry, he says. They are the first English words he speaks to her, to anyone. That week, they work side by side in the fields, and the devil, though watchful, does not act against them. In the evenings, they return to their bed, but they sleep on opposite sides of it, never touching. Some nights, they fear that the devil is watching them as they lie, and those are the nights Sam hugs her body to his, waiting for the metronome of fear that keeps her heart's drumbeat moving quickly to slow. His vocabulary has grown to include 
her name and his, don't worry and quiet. In a month, he will learn love. In a month, once the wounds on both of their backs have hardened to scars, they finally consummate their marriage. He picks her up so easily. She thinks she must have turned into one of the rag dolls she makes for the children to play with. She has never been with a man before, but she imagines that Sam is not a man. For her, he has become something much larger than man, the Tower of Babel itself, so close to God that it must be toppled. He runs his hands along her scabby back, and she does the same along his. And as they work together, clutching each other, some scars reopen. They are both bleeding now, both bride and bridegroom, in this unholy, holy union. Breath leaves his mouth and enters hers, and they lie together until the roosters crow, until it's time to return to the fields. Ness awoke to Pinky's finger poking her shoulder. Ness, Ness, she spoke. Ness turned to face the girl, trying to hide her surprise. Was you having a bad dream? She asked. No, Ness said. It looked like you was having a bad dream, the girl said, disappointed because when she was lucky, Ness told her stories. It was bad, Ness replied, but it wasn't no dream. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Yaa Jesse and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Jesse has read many books that follow this particular form of flowing through multiple generations. No, not quite, not exactly like this. I'd read a lot of multi-POV novels um, and a lot of kind of family, multi-generational family novels. Um, one that was particularly helpful was A Hundred Years of Solitude, um, but that, uh, that structure was really hard and I couldn't figure out how he did it. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do something that would kind of allow, allow me to march forward in time in a way that he wasn't attempting to do in that. Um, so I felt like I needed to do something different. Um, I think the challenge of this particular structure wasn't necessarily all of the points of view, but just the amount of time that I was attempting to cover. Because usually when you see a multi-generational novel, um, there are fewer years and fewer characters, and you also kind of return to characters um, that you leave behind. And for this, I knew that I never wanted to go back in time. I just wanted to move forward. Um, and I hadn't seen anything that that had done that before. This next question is about the kind of research Jesse conducted to help write this novel. I did a great deal of research for this book. Uh, I, I mean, I knew a little bit. I knew much more about American history, obviously, than I did about Ghanaian history. I didn't grow up in Ghana. I was born there, but it moved when I was two. Um, and so I never went to school there and didn't have the kind of foundational background of Ghanaian customs and 
um, traditions. And so particularly for the side of this novel that takes place in Ghana, most of it was through research. Um, there was a really great book called The Door of No Return by William St. Clair that took me through the Cape Coast Castle, so uh, kind of allowed me to see what, um, or I guess imagine what life might have been like for people living in the castle during the time period that I was interested in. Um, there was another book called uh, A Handbook on Ashanti Culture um, that helped me uh, write or think through some of the, the problems that would have been happening with the Ashanti. And then there's a book called The Fanti and the Transatlantic Slave Trade by Rebecca Shumway that again was really helpful for those earlier chapters and thinking through the different ethnic groups' involvement in the slave trade. Um, but I would say I would say that most of it um, most of it required research and a lot of it was, you know, stories and, and thinking through things that my parents had said and, you know, that kind of thing. But I was very fortunate to get to take that trip to Ghana um, and also very fortunate to be attached to a university that allowed me access to a lot of different books. This question asker inquires about the inspiration behind the fire in Homegoing. Um, the book kind of opened for me, the idea for the book kind of opened for me with this image of somebody setting a fire and then kind of escaping into it. Um, and if you read the book, that's, that's basically what happens on the very first chapter. This the patriarch of the Ghanaian side of the family is describing this massive fire that has just ripped through his crops. And when he checks his crops, he notices that he's lost seven yams. And he talks about this loss as though it's a curse, a generational curse. Um, and so we can imagine that it's going to affect seven generations. The book takes you through seven generations. Um, it was a kind of fable, fairy tale-like way to open a story, an evil stepmother, a beautiful daughter, a curse. Um, <laughs> it's pretty classically fairy tale. Um, but because of that, and because of the structure being so difficult, um, I thought that one way to allow the chapters to cohere would be to think about fire and water specifically. And so on Afia's side, um, there is this constant reference to fire, this relationship to fire. So you have a character like Aquia who is visited by a woman she calls the fire woman. You have Yao who's scarred by fire. Um, so all of those characters are somehow touched by fire in some way. And this was just a, a kind of, um, I guess a, a writerly trick to figure out a way to allow us to always remember whose side of the family we were on. Um, and then for Essie's side, similarly, um, because she's sent through the middle passage, there's a similar relationship to water, um, characters who are uh, afraid of water or can't swim, that kind of thing. And then, so when you're reading it, um, I don't have to. I don't have to ever mention Afia or Essie. It's just a, a tool to kind of get you to think back to those first two characters. Um, so that's how the fire and water came about. This audience member asks if Ya Jesse traced her own genealogy to help write this book. No, I didn't. Um, I, I felt really strongly that if I started to do that kind of work, it would turn this into something very different. Um, and I knew that I wanted to write fiction, um, and I didn't want to feel kind of beholden, I guess, to the truth in the way that I think once I started that particular project, I would have had to, um, 
I wouldn't have felt as free, I guess, to make things up as I felt. Um, so I would say I started the novel by inventing my own family tree, um, which looks a lot like the one at the front of the book, except mine also had time periods and then one thing that was happening politically, historically, during the background, during each time period. And I just, I wrote out that family tree and I put it on the desk, uh, or I put it on the wall above my desk. And so I was working off of a fake genealogy, um, but it wasn't my own. Our next question is about Jesse's connection to the character of Marjorie. And as a follow-up, will there be a sequel to Homegoing? Um, I get that question about Marjorie a lot. She's, the, she's certainly the character that most closely resembles me, just in terms of biographical information. You know, she's born in Ghana, but raised in Alabama. Um, that's true for me as well. Um, I think both Marjorie and Marcus are probably the two characters that feel nearest to me somehow. Um, obviously that makes sense because they're the nearest in time period, so perhaps I understood them a little better than I did the other ones. Um, I would say Marjorie starts to veer off in several, several different ways. Um, most notably, she has a really intimate, deep relationship to Ghana, um, one that I didn't really have growing up. I, I left when I was two and we went back once when I was 11, and then I didn't go back again until, um, until researching this book. And so unlike Marjorie, who goes back every summer and spends that time with her grandmother, and I think still feels quite rooted to that place. Um, and then for the second question, no. <laughs> I don't really have any plans for a sequel. I feel, I feel finished with this. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I wouldn't close the door if, if it started to interest me in that way again, um, but for now, it, it feels complete. Another audience member asked Ya Jesse when she decided to include the two black stones into her story. Actually quite late in the process. So I had finished a first draft of this novel um, about a couple weeks after graduating from graduate school, and my thesis advisor at Iowa, where I went um, for grad school, uh, read the novel very kindly, read the novel and gave me notes on it. And one of the things that she said was that it would be nice to follow some kind of physical object um, down the line. And so, and so I thought about it a little bit and the stones occurred to me and I felt like um, it would be nice to have both sides of the family have one and it felt as though the, the American side of the family in particular wouldn't be able to hold on to theirs just because of the ways in which they were ripped apart, like so many of them probably wouldn't have access to, um, to being able to carry any kind of physical thing um, down, down um, centuries. And so I played with it a little bit, you know, after that, after that second draft, um, there were chapters where, or there, was, there were versions where it appeared in every chapter, there were versions where it didn't appear at all, and um, I had to kind of tweak it a little bit, but it, it wasn't in the first draft. This question is what was Yah Jesse's black experience in America, having been born in Africa and raised in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think I had to seek it out in college. Um, you know, obviously, I, I learned about slavery and the slave trade in, in a kind of 
vague, broad stroke ways in school the way that any, anybody does. Um, but in terms of like figuring out the kind of intimate details about it that you would need in order to be able to write a book like this, I, I had to do it myself and I had to do it, I had to want to do it myself, you know, it's not the kind of thing that, um, that is just, that people are talking about every day. And I was lucky at Stanford, um, I took a lot of classes through this department called Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity, um, and it's a, a major that is available there. And so. Um, they talk through a lot of the issues, I think, that, that were interesting to me, um, questions about race and ethnicity, which basically form the backbone of this book. But again, had I not, um, had I not gone to a school that had the resources and um, the opportunity to, to seek out those kinds of things that I was interested in learning, um, I, don't, I don't think that I could have written a book like this. Uh, I don't know that I would have um, necessarily attempted to. This audience member wonders how the passing of time plays into Jesse's novel. This book was always for me about the present. You know, it was kind of always about the present moment, about um, what we have been left, uh, what the legacies of these things, slavery and colonialism, look like in practice today. Um, and so I knew really early on that I wanted to be able to, to follow um, to follow this through line of time, to start not just um, not just have a book that you know talked about slavery in the 18th century and then talked about um, present day America. I wanted one that that was a lot that allowed me to kind of trace through every single step along the way, um, and I think you know that element of time was the only thing that I wasn't willing to compromise on um, because it felt so integral to the to the point of this book, I guess, that, um, that so much of what we see in the present doesn't appear out of nowhere. Um, so, so when we are looking at our present situation, we have to put it in the context of history. And 250 years, um, it isn't that long um, in, the, you know, in, the, in the life of man. Um, it took me seven generations to do this book, which is a grandmother's grandmother, you know, essentially. Um, and when you think about it in that way, when you look at a unit um, of a family versus a unit of um, however else we kind of conceptualize time, I think it is a little easier for people to grasp that. The last question of the night comes from an audience member asking if any characters in particular helped influence the plot of the novel. Yeah, um, so I would say H's chapter was the most fascinating to write, um, just because it was the most fascinating to research. Um, in that family tree that I uh, talked about, um, for some of them I had very specific things, specific goals in mind for, um, for kind of what would be happening in history during the time. So for Kojo's chapter, it was the Fugitive Slave Act. For Akuya's chapter, it was the Asantwa War. Um, and those, those points in history kind of allowed me to figure out um, what to research and, and how to figure out the story, essentially. But for most of the characters, it was actually quite vague. And for H's chapter, all I had written was, you know, H, 1865 through whatever year. Um, Reconstruction slash Jim Crow. So I didn't really know at all what his chapter was about or um, what I wanted to talk about with him, what I wanted to, to do with that character. Um, I started researching that time period and I was just researching, I guess, jobs that people might have had right after the emancipation 
um, what, what professions were freed black people um, doing. And obviously sharecropping came up over and over and over until I found this one article by Douglas Blackman that was in the Wall Street Journal called um, From Alabama's Past, Capitalism Teamed with Racism to Create Cruel Partnership. It's a very long title. Um, but it, it was about the convict leasing system. Um, and it was a, he had followed this one man um, named Green Cottenham who was arrested and convicted of vagrancy and sentenced to work in the coal mines just outside of Birmingham. Um, and I knew nothing about this, like knew nothing about this history and found it so interesting that I kind of just went down this rabbit hole of research um, and H's chapter is what emerged from that. Um, so I still feel a lot of fondness, I guess, for, for him and for that process just because I learned so much um, in doing it. All right, I think that's it. Thank you so much. That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library Merriam Park event with Yah Jesse. And that'll wrap up our winter-spring 2017 club book season. Make sure to check back with us this summer as we announce our summer-fall 2017 season lineup with more great authors. Podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes, so if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past seven seasons, we've had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.